Have you heard of the Torah coming out of Berlin? We've had exciting guests, rabbis and activists, artists and thinkers, bringing their unique brand of Torah into your living rooms. But we've only begun to scratch the surface. We need more voices, more ideas, more of the leaders and innovators and healers and writers who are filling this city with its soul. For the Torah of Berlin is eclectic. It is different and sometimes strange, but it is brimming with individuality, with hope, with a taste of the world we have yet to build. So come and learn. Welcome to Torah Curious. Hello, and welcome to Torah Curious. <laughs> I'm your host, Jeremy Borbitz, and I have a very unusual guest for myself today. Uh, we are here with the the man who sired me, Rabbi Neil Borbitz. Welcome, Rabbi Neil. Well, thank you, Jeremy. <laughs> and it's really been amazing to be here with uh, Hindi and Scylla and Rebecca and you for the last three weeks. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, Rabbi Neil, Dad, uh, I wonder if we could start out by having you tell us about your earliest Jewish memory. Well, actually, I'm glad that you asked me that question yesterday to remind <laughs> me, and I've listened to all the other Torah Curious uh, episodes. My earliest Jewish memory is... Passover Seder. Hmm. And what I remember is that we would have, you know, scores of people. Wow. Uh, there could be uh, 30 to 50 people uh, at my grandparents' uh, home. And uh, we didn't, enough, didn't have enough tables. And I used to take my father and uncles used to take the doors <laughs> off of closets and put them on sawhorses uh, to extend the tables. Wow. And uh, one of the things was that all the grandchildren uh, were always gathered around my grandfather, hmm. who was reading the Haggadah. Wow. And uh, even though he read it all in Hebrew and a, and an Ashkenazic Yiddish yeah. <laughs> a, accented Hebrew, uh, there was something just powerfully mystical and spiritual about, uh, about it, uh, and also full of laughter and love. Uh, so that's one of my earliest experiences that I remember is that Seder, uh, and my grandmother's filter fish yeah. and matzo ball soup. There's a famous story that I've heard before that your grandmother used to buy fish and put it in the bathtub. Well, she actually only did that once. She okay. used to buy fish and uh, she would usually make 20 pounds of, uh, of filter fish, <laughs> uh, Lake Erie Pike. Wow. And uh, one time she went one year... I was about 10 or 11 years old at the time. And she went to the uh, fish market and he said there, there was a special. If you bought the fish live, it was half price. <laughs> so instead of 15 or 20 pounds, she bought 30 or 40 pounds of fish and had it delivered. <laughs> and uh, my grandfather uh, was well into his 60s at the time. He liked to come home after taking three buses from his dry cleaning tailoring shop uh, to where he lived and take a bath after dinner, take a bath. Yeah. And my grandmother didn't tell him <laughs> about the fish. <laughs> so he goes into the bathroom and he's about to get into the bathtub. And my grandfather was the calmest man in the world. He got out of the bath. He, he got out of the bathroom, went to the phone, and he called my father. And he says, "I can't, Jerry. I can't explain what your mother did, but can you pick me? Come pick me up so I can come take a bath at your house." <laughs> <laughs> 
Wow. W- would you describe your grandfather as a religious man? Because you, you describe this Seder as like a mystical experience. So. No, he was... Uh, well, my grandfather grew up uh, in a shtetl called Bransk, uh, which is near Bialystok, uh, that I believe... I know Jeremy went to visit. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. I've never yeah. been there. Uh, and he grew up in a, you know, in a traditional home. And I've seen pictures of my great grandfather, who I never knew, uh, who uh, lived the uh, the second half of his life and died in Cleveland, but remained a very traditionally observant guy. My grandfather, uh, when he came to America, became a member of the Workman Circle. Mm. One of the founders of the Cleveland uh, chapter to Workman Circle, uh, and uh, my socialist roots. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, and uh, was. But when it came to Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Pesach, uh, I think his childhood memories oh, wow. all came back, and he passed uh, that sense, especially the sense of large family seders. Yeah, uh, and I think. It was one of the things I really missed this year in COVID-19. Yeah. It was the first time I uh, didn't have uh, a full house for Seder. Yeah. We always had huge Seders. Yeah. Wow. And uh, though it was interesting because uh, since uh, I'm uh, less ritually observant than you are, <laughs> uh, we were able to have... Uh, People zoom into our Seder. Yeah. So there was something nice about that, but it was also uh, jarring not not to be grounded. I think that Pesach Seders are one of the grounding experiences of my life. And it's one of the things that certainly in my rabbinic career, uh, I used as uh, trying to introduce to people as a gateway into Judaism. Wow. Passover is a gateway drug. I like it. Yes. Uh, um, I think it's also true here. You know, it's like um, at Passover and at Yom Kippur, the Jews come out of the woodwork. You know, Um, I think they're the two staple, the two sort of staples of the Jewish year that appeal to the widest variety of Jews, whether you're religious or secular. Secular Jews still feel something about Passover and Yom Kippur. Absolutely. Matter of fact, uh, I don't know if I ever told you this story. I did a paper when I was in rabbinical school on the Kaifeng uh, Haggadah. Hmm. Uh, there was a group of Chinese Jews who uh, most historians today, they, they probably were uh, coming out of Babylonia. Yeah. And they were traitors. Uh, and uh, at and one of the reasons we know is about the 10th or 11th century, because uh, their Haggadah, they had uh, literature uh, that they left behind. They'd all pretty much assimilated by the time they were discovered in the late 19th century by Christian missionaries. But they had books. And uh, their Passover Haggadah uh, included PU team, including a... Uh, an acrostic piyut in the middle of the Kiddush hmm. uh, and, uh, called Baharbanu, hmm. uh, and another uh, piyut uh, that was instead of Dayenu told, uh, called Ataga Alta. Hmm. Uh, and one of the things we know about this community when they were discovered is that they didn't understand what they were reading anymore. As a matter of fact, the last person when they were discovered by the Christians they, they, they were told that the last person who could actually read the Hebrew, hmm. uh, read these their holy books, I don't even know if they knew it was Hebrew, I can't remember right now, but they, they had died a generation or two earlier. Wow. But what, and, and we know they're all, they didn't understand what they were saying because the uh, vocalization was all wrong. Hmm. But they had a two ancient family customs. One was on the new moon uh, of spring, they had a feast and they didn't eat leavened bread. Hmm. And the second 
was that they had a fast day uh, in the first month of, uh, of autumn near the beginning. And I don't know if they observed it on the 10th day or at the new moon or something. Yeah. But so somehow Passover and Yom Kippur were vestiges for those uh, for this community uh, in China. And uh, I think that in many ways, they're vestiges for assimilated Jews all over the world today. And so the question is, how do we use this vestige as a way to uh, reinstill meaning hmm. in people's lives and hmm. uh, and take that connection and turn it into what Martin Buber would call relationship? Hmm. Wow. I want to ask you a question before we go deeper into that about um, your childhood, because you <coughs> mentioned you and all your cousins gathering around your grandfather. You grew up with all your cousins. Yes. You had like dozens of cousins who lived down the block from you. Right. In the, in the, uh, in the neighborhood in, uh, in suburban Cleveland. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and I grew up with, uh, uh, Lots and lots of cousins around. Uh, and uh, one of the sad things is we, m many of us, uh, a lot of us, most, probably the majority of my cousins dispersed to other uh, yeah. communities uh, after college. And our generation was the first of our, in our family that really uh, went to college. You know, it's so interesting because like you had this like close tight knit family in Cleveland and I'm sure of your parents' generation, all of them wanted their kids to go to college, and then their kids went to college and left. Right. And and there's like an interesting, uh, like there's an interesting irony there of like there was something about like the fact that you, there was no upward mobility, that there was no opportunity for higher education, that kept the whole family closer together. Well, I think that one of the things that happened was that uh, uh, certainly. Uh, For my generation, uh, Cleveland by the uh, mid '60s, '70s uh, <laughs> was going into uh, you know somewhat of a, a of a continuing economic recession. For those of you uh, who don't know, Lake Erie was on fire, and what year was right, that? Right, in 1970, it burned. <laughs> yeah. But one of the things that happened was that uh, the steel industry and the auto industry, that were the uh, great employers. Uh, in Cleveland, as well as Detroit and Pittsburgh, and all of those, what some people refer to as the Rust Belt. Yeah. Uh, those those industries uh, provided employment not just for the people who worked in those factories, but for shopkeepers and mm -hmm. uh, and salespeople, uh, which was a good part of the Jewish community. And so uh, the, Jew uh, the Jewish community in Cleveland, which was a very tight-knit and uh, community uh, and, you know, really a model for uh, how to build Jewish community and maintain institutions, et cetera, uh, it's smaller today than it was when I was a kid hmm. uh, and uh, still has some good strengths. And there's many people who did stay, and I had cousins who uh, did stay in Cleveland, uh, but uh, many of us dispersed in different places, uh, and uh, and that's that that was a change. Yeah, tell me, do you have any other memories of your grandfather that stick out? Because I also say like he was such a. We have like we had pictures of him on your wall growing up. And I, he had these big ears that used yes. to stick out. And he was like such a physical presence, you know, like he just like even in the photographs, you can see that like he really held a presence. Yeah, he did. And and yet in many ways. And my grandmother, uh, Annie, Abe's wife, uh, she was the quintessential balabos. <laughs> uh, and uh, there was a kindness about my grandfather uh, that permeated it. He was a person who truly commanded rather than demanded respect. Hmm. Uh, and uh, loved the opera. Uh, one of my great memories is that uh, Saturday afternoons, 
Uh, it started with my cousin Alan and Gary and my brother Stuart and me. Uh, and was that uh, when from about the age of 12 or 13, right around bar mitzvah time, until uh, about 16, we were all around three years apart, uh, that uh, one of the grandchildren would go down on Saturday afternoons to Grandpa's uh, tailoring dry cleaning shop store uh, and help hand out uh, the dry cleaning. Hmm. People would come on Saturdays to pick up their yeah. weekly dry cleaning and tailoring. Yeah. And uh, so while my grandfather was sitting at the tailoring at his sewing machine, uh, you know, we would ha be handing out the dry cleaning. Wow. Uh, that was our first job. <laughs> uh, and uh, so my grandfather loved the opera. But if uh, uh, and he would so sometimes I would come and I, I he'd be listening to the opera. But if he knew there was a baseball game on. Uh, or uh, a football game that I wanted to listen to on the radio, he would change the channel. Wow. Wow. So it was like, you know, the, the kinder were, uh, were central. Wow. Wow. He also, and like, this is a part of his story that I'm most proud of. Um, like, uh, you, you talk about the grandchildren, but really they were his great nieces and nephews because right. he adopted five or six of his nieces and nephews yes yes uh my grandmother had uh two sisters who died uh very young uh, one in childbirth and one uh i don't remember the story on uh uh on the other one but uh and uh my grandparents took in uh uh their nieces and nephews, and actually the brother-in-law used to sometimes live there too. He was in and out. Uh, he was a, uh, a he was in the garment uh, industry too. He was a labor uh, a labor leader, and he would be in Cleveland and New York. Cleveland was a major garment center. Yeah. Uh, in the first half of the twentieth century. And. Hmm. Uh I, I also, I, if I recall correctly, at my grandma's funeral, a cousin of your father's came to Shiva, um, and he told us that your grandfather also took in another right, relative. Right, and, another, and they <laughs> yeah. had another, right. Yeah. And then there was and it, it, uh, another uh, another nephew uh, that was actually on his, uh, from his side of the family uh, that uh, would have been otherwise homeless or wound up in an orphanage. And yet they had this small house or apartment where they yeah, had well, to take they, the doors were, uh, off the when closets. When they had all the kids, they lived, they rented uh, uh, a house, uh, you know, uh, it was a two-family house. Uh, and they had one, I, I believe, if my memory is correct, because it was very, uh, yeah. that's very young. I think they had, they had the first floor and somebody else, was in the second, uh, was in the upstairs apartment. Hmm. Uh, my dad, uh, my dad and my uncle Marty usually slept on a pull-out sofa most of their childhood growing up. Wow. Uh, and, uh, and I remember, you know, as you're mentioning it, I can remember my, my dad uh, and my Aunt Eddie telling stories about how they, uh, they used to have a, a stopwatch on how long you could be in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, it, wow. It's like a different world and it's amazing. I'm constantly amazed by your grandfather's kindness. I think it's something I always sort of, um, I strive for. Yeah, he was, he was really, uh, and he was, you know, well-read, uh, read the forwards, you know, but also read the, uh, you know, the Cleveland papers. I mean, taught himself English. My other grandfather too. Yeah. Uh, so it was interesting in that generation of my grandparents' generation, uh, neither of my grandmothers were really literate in English. Yeah. Uh, they spoke and, to you in Yiddish or they spoke to you? No, they spoke it. They spoke sort of a, 
They spoke Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> and, and actually somebody, uh, I can't remember who it was, but there was a scholar who talked about, there was a, what really developed uh, in the 1920s, 30s, early 40s was uh, a, a Yiddish English. Yeah. That uh, there was really a language of Jewish that wasn't as German-based uh, as Yiddish uh, is. Uh, that was emerging in America. Yeah. And, uh, and yes, they spoke that. And they, uh, I mean, sometimes my grandmother would say close to Fenster. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, that would be, but uh, both my grandfathers were, uh, were, they really learned to speak English and, and to, to write English and to read. It was important to them. Yeah. It was important to them. Uh, to be Americans. Yeah. Crazy story. Uh, after my dad died in 1966, uh, when I graduated high school, my cousin Ronnie and I took a trip to New York. Uh, his dad was managing a used car lot, gave us a car, uh, and my Uncle Harry gave us some cash. And we went off to New York, and my mother had a, a cousin uh, who worked for uh, a tobacco company, P. Lorillard, who was an executive. And he got us Broadway show tickets. And one of the shows we went to was Fiddler on the Roof. And when we came back, uh, we uh, we went to my, my grandpa Abe. My grandfather Dave had uh, passed away three years earlier. Uh, and... Uh, and we said, Grandpa, so tell us about your shtetl. You know, we just saw Fiddler on the Roof. And his answer was, Shalom Aleichem had a great imagination. <laughs> he says, yeah. it's not, was nothing, nothing like he describes. He says, he says and, and, and then, you know, he, he pointed out to us, uh, you know, uh, on his bookshelf, all these Yiddish books, my grandfather had a complete set of Shalom Aleichem wow. in Yiddish. Wow. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't know what happened to those books. Was, you know, uh, One of your cousins when, might have sold uh, them. You, you know, know I, no, no, I might. Actually, my uncle Saul, uh, my father's cousin, uh, when he was when my grandparent, when my grandmother died, and my mother uh, and my grandfather moved in with my mom, uh, her father-in-law moved in with her. Yeah, uh, they were. Uh, Saul got rid of. He was getting rid of all the stuff. And I think, you know, he gave away all the books, the sewing machine, everything, you know. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. And my grandfather, both my grandfathers had Singer sewing machines that were originally pedal driven. Wow. That they, that had been adapted to electric. Wow. Cool. You know, so uh, I've seen them in museums now. <laughs> <laughs> we could have been rich. Yeah. yeah no, no, we could have had something really. Yeah. You know. Really old. Really old. Uh, although we have some things. We have his prayer book. Yeah. We have your grandfather. Right. Your grandfather's prayer right. book. Actually, a prayer book that he gave to my dad to take to carry with him in uh, during World War Two. Yeah. Yeah. And he inscribed it in uh, in Yiddish. And yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Um, and my gr your mother gave it to me before yeah. I went to the Peace Corps. Right. Yeah. Um, when did you know? When did you first start thinking about becoming a rabbi? It was, uh, actually the year I was in Israel, when I seriously began thinking about it. When did uh, you go to Israel? 1968, my junior year of college. And why, why did you go to Israel? <laughs> why? Uh, because, uh. Did you grow up in a Zionist household, would you say? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, the real thing was the Six Day War. Yeah. Uh. And also, my Jewish awareness uh, became more acute uh, when I went went to school from my freshman year to Vanderbilt, where I, I hoped to go in. I just, you know, and my mom and my family pushed me to do it even after my dad passed away. Uh, and uh, because all of a sudden I was living in this uh, where I was a real minority. You know, I yeah. grew up in a 
uh, on the east side of Cleveland where uh, where Jews were, you know, 30, 40 percent of the population, at least. Right. Uh, of the eastern suburbs. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so all of a sudden I went and I became more acutely aware of the differences. Uh, it's when I first uh, confronted evangelicals. Wow. Uh, <laughs> and it made me think about what it was I was defending. Now, I'd had a I'd had a traditional Hebrew school education in a conservative synagogue, went to, uh, was confirmed, it went to Hebrew high, went to high school through 12th grade, uh, Sunday school programs. You did USY? Uh, you did USY. Yeah. So, uh, so I had some stuff there, and I was actually saying Kaddish to my father, uh, and actually at the end of saying Kaddish, uh, the last thing I wanted to do was to go to shul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but the Six Day War happened, and I wanted to go to Israel and volunteer. Hmm. And uh, I went to my mom's friend, who was also her boss, who had hired her after my dad died. And, I, and uh, his daughter and I went together hmm. uh, to ask uh, Myron uh, to uh, buy us tickets to go to Israel so we could volunteer and help wow. in the summer of 67. And he says the last thing Israel needs uh, right now is more uh, kids like you running around that they got to worry about. <laughs> if you want to do something for Israel, uh, why don't you start to raise some money? Stop drinking beer in the bars and uh, go raise some money. <laughs> so we actually started uh, what may have been the first UJA student campaign wow. uh, because we uh, there was a reform uh, a assistant rabbi at a reform synagogue there, Earl Jordan, who helped us. And we organized. Uh, we s kept going to the bars and drinking beer, uh, but put pushkas on the end of the bar, have one last beer for Israel. Wow. And then did some parties and da da da. And the other thing uh, Myron said, if you want to go to Israel, find a way to go to school there. Hmm. So I started investigating and found out about the, uh, the American Friends at the Hebrew University. Uh, one of my brother's uh, friends uh, growing up had uh, gone on that program. Uh, Who is and, that? Uh, uh, a guy named, uh, well, actually, there were, there were two of them. There was uh, uh, Sammy Meisels and, uh, and Larry Lauer. Yeah, Levy Lauer, Rabbi right, Levy Lauer. Rabbi Levy Lauer, who yeah. uh, preceded me at HUC by three years. Yeah, and, and, and later went on to found Pardes. And went on, later went on to found Pardes uh, in Israel. And uh, Sammy Meisels, who was the son of the cantor. Oh, well. And they had both gone on this. I talked to them. I applied. And uh, I, got a, I got some scholarship money to go because I couldn't work. Uh, and it was when I was in Israel, I became very poignantly aware of two things. Uh, not only my love of Israel and my passion for, for Jewish studies, which had been also sparked when I was taking some religious studies classes at Vanderbilt my uh, freshman and sophomore, especially my sophomore year. I took a number of religion courses, including Jewish philosophy. And uh, then, and I really was thinking about making Aliyah. Hmm. Uh, but I also realized how much I missed my family. Hmm. And, uh, you know, there, uh, this is the age before cell phones and internet and email and you were really isolated yeah uh when you lived at a distance from people uh so i came back i finished vanderbilt and i wasn't sure what i was going to do i applied to uh uh for rabbinical school and one of the and i still wasn't sure if this is what i wanted to do or not but they were sending me back to israel huc i was in the first class at huc that was required to study in israel so well, this was sort of hedging my bets, right? <laughs> you know, I was going to start studying for the rabbinate, and I was also going back to Israel. And the rest is history. Yeah. Wow. I, uh, it's, there's a lot of interesting, first off, I think it's so, I don't think I'd ever heard you frame that story of like the, in that way, because I've heard some of these stories before, full disclosure. <laughs> um, but as how much the Six Day War sort of like set you on this path 
um, that you were going to start um, that really led you to where you are. Um, okay, so you uh, you went to Israel in 68, 69, and then you're a senior at Vanderbilt, and you decide, I'm going to go to rabbinical school? Yeah, so I applied to rabbinical school, and uh, uh, and I really knew I wanted to do it after I was in the first draft lottery. <laughs> For the, Viet, number, for the Vietnam for War. For the Vietnam War. And I got number 336, so I wasn't getting drafted. Yeah. And I still wanted to go. Okay. <laughs> so I knew this was... Because there was an exemption for people like in graduate school, correct? Yeah. Uh, no, there was an exemption. No, actually, there was an exemption uh, for divinity students. Oh, wow. So it wasn't any graduate school. Wow. Uh, most gra- most people couldn't go on to graduate school in 1969 70. Wow. Uh, and uh, so, but I had an, so I, by going to HUC, uh, that was a, a pass out of the army. Wow. Uh, there was a separate draft for chaplains, but yeah. you know, uh, that was different. And that was eliminated before I was ordained. Right. Hmm. Interesting. You know, I'm also thinking, you know, you mentioned American Friends of Hebrew University. And of course, my mother, who you did not know at this point, her aunt and uncle were incredibly involved in American Friends of Hebrew University. And I think there's like six or seven instances in the time before you met my mother where you got your paths like crossed right by each other. Absolutely. Which I Absolutely. think is really, really, I always found that really interesting. How, how many times you probably came really close to meeting without meeting. Without meeting. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay, so you went. Uh, so you went to rabbinical school. You decided. Why did you decide to go to HUC in Cincinnati? Well, actually, I, I went and I applied to JTS. I, I to, to inquire about JTS and HUC. I went for preliminary interviews to both. And uh, at the time, uh, JTS. Uh, uh, number one, I found out, you know, they had a mechitza minion, you know, which was antithetical to, to the conservative Judaism I'd grown up in. Right, because you had mixed seating growing yes. up in your synagogue. And, uh, uh, and actually, my rabbi growing up uh, was not ordained. It was a conservative synagogue, but he had been ordained by Stephen Wise hmm. at what was then an, an independent Jewish institute of religion where people went into... Uh, conservative and reformed synagogues uh, yeah. equally out of there. Uh, it became the New York School of HUC, if that's why it's... HUCJIR. Uh, HUCJIR, yeah. yes. And so... Uh, and also uh, the sense that at the time you had to sign uh, an agreement uh, with the school that you would be Shomer Kashrut, Shomer Shabbos, and Shomer Tefillin. And I really felt those issues were between me and God hmm. and not between me and an institution. This is 1969. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. And you were still uh, a child of the 60s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, I'm still a child. Of the 60s. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and at HUC, one of my problems was that the Reformed Judaism of my youth was very classical. Yeah. But HUC was starting to change. And the Six-Day War was one of the things that changed, began a change. And actually, my class going to Israel, being exposed to ritual, uh, is one of the things that really changed the reform movement and made it more uh, open to ritual observance. Uh, but the, uh, the admissions director said, you know, if you want to wear a kippah, you wear a kippah. Just don't tell me to. Yeah. And I really believe in ritual options. Yeah. To me, kashrut is important, but it's not the sine qua non of Jewish existence. There, I, I really do, uh, in a classical reform, uh, with, within a philosophically, find my, uh, have found myself in 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 the classic reform uh, con, uh, construct where the mitzvot. Uh, the mitzvot ben adam v'chaveiro, the the moral and ethical uh, commandments that govern our interpersonal relationships, uh, I I find more compelling than uh, the ritual 
than the ritual commandments. Uh, I, reform made that distinction a hundred, uh, almost 200 years ago, uh, began making that distinction. I want to push you a little bit on that, though, because I don't think it's entirely true. Because um, there, first off, I will say, you know, sort of what you're describing is like Eugene Borowitz, no relation, as far as we know, right. uh, wrote this essay, Choice Through Knowledge, um, and then it became a book, I think, um, which is sort of, I think, we kind of were raised in a choice through knowledge household. I don't think there were a lot of us out there, <laughs> um, but we were kind of raised in one. Um, and at the same time, like you care deeply about Ben Adam Javiro, but there are certain ritual observances that you care deeply about. We always had to be home for Shabbos dinner. Right. We always right. had to be. And if we weren't, you would get very upset. <laughs> <laughs> um, which like is also tied to other things, but it's like, I want, I think you should give yourself more credit. Like, it's not just that you're, you're not making a blanket statement that like, Bain Adam Lechavero is more important than Bain Adam Lamakom. You're saying Bain Adam Lechavero is binding on everybody and other things are binding on me. Right. I think there's even a little, little more nuance to it. Uh, I believe people I believe that people have a right and a responsibility uh, to choose the rituals uh, that are meaningful to them, uh, that uh, tie them to uh, to God, to their community, to their family. Yeah. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, rituals are the hooks you hang values on. Hmm. Or sometimes I've used the metaphor, it's the skeleton. And without yeah. a skeleton... Uh, a human being is just a blob. Yeah. So we need that. But uh, I think the moral and ethical teachings uh, of, uh, of Torah are... You can't start to make nuanced choices. You know, you can't murder. You know, when you look at the top 10 commandments. Yeah. You know, Shomortha, Yom how you observe this... To observe Shabbat, to make Shabbat, I think is 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 important. Uh, how you do it, what's part of you making Shabbat? Uh, I think people can have choices on. Yeah. Uh, but when it comes to murder, idolatry, theft, sexual offenses, uh, bearing false witness, uh, you know, taking a false oath, uh, that ain't. We can't have options. We can't have a moral and civil society uh, if uh, if everybody's free to make those choices on that. Yeah. So I think that that's the that's the nuanced difference, and I think that was one of the by making that the early Reformed Jews uh, actually have two institutions, rabbinic schools here in uh, Berlin, uh, yeah. Geiger and Frankel. Yeah. Uh, named after uh, the people who were the first, the first Jews to really uh, modern Jews uh, to really articulate that and ask the question and, and pose the question: How can I live as a Jew in the modern world? Hmm. By the way, going back to my grandfathers, both my grandfathers, uh, David Nagelberg and Abe Borowitz, the question for them when they came in the first decade of the ninth, of the 20th century to America was how can I as a Jew live in this modern world? The question for you and e even more importantly for uh, my four grandchildren mm -hmm. is uh, how can I live as a Jew in this modern world, it's a nuanced difference. Yeah. Rather than how I, how can I as a Jew live in this modern world, but how can I live as a Jew in this modern world? Yeah. That's what you and Rebecca are doing here. Is well, we're trying to, to figure is, out. Is, is yeah. trying to figure out and pose those questions to people that and and offering models of, as examples of how you can live in this modern, uh, you know, twenty first century. Uh, uh, international community and still live as a Jew. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 
Um, I think you've brought a piece of Torah to share with us. Yeah, actually, the, to- the piece <laughs> of Torah I want to share is actually about Yaakov, which is uh, your Hebrew name. It is my Hebrew name, Yaakov uh, Tzvi. But uh, it so happens uh, I I write a Torah commentary still for the Jewish Standard of Northern New Jersey that uh, uh, is also on the Times of Israel blog. Uh, and I wrote, I happen to have written for about next week's Torah portion. Which will uh, be this week's Torah portion for those of you listening. Right. Uh, for Parshat Vayetzeh. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's the, the story of Jacob's Ladder. Mm. We have these angels, uh, Olim Yordimbo, mm-hmm. uh, you know, going up and coming down this ladder, Jacob dreams. Yeah. What are these messengers of God? And why are they uh, uh, going up and coming down uh, on this ladder. Uh, I think that messengers of God, and malachim really means messenger. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gets translated as angel in uh, most uh, English translations. It's not just about Jacob. What do you think of Jacob? Uh, I think that Jacob is the most human and fascinating of, uh, of the patriarchal characters. Why? Uh because uh, he never stops being Yaakov, the heel, yeah, the, the conniver, the the uh, the negotiator, yeah, uh, and yet ultimately in the second dream he'll become Yisrael, hmm. uh, one who wrestles with uh, Israel means uh, God wrestler, but the the verse says Kisarita imelohim veimanashim betuchal, for you've wrestled with uh, the divine Elohim, the Anashim, and the human, the uh, Tuchal, uh, prevailed, persevere. It's unclear what it means. Uh, Consumed, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, right. I actually think it's the Nike sign. I think that it's the challenge of life. Jacob represents the challenge of your life and my life, of every human life. We have to wrestle with the human and the divine. Wow. Just do it. Yahol. Do it. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and uh, in in Vayetze with the uh, seeing these angels going up and down, it also represents to me uh, the up and down nature of life. Yeah. Uh, you know, I one time gave a, uh, a sermon uh when I was doing double services, because uh, our synagogue was under repair, uh, I was running up and down stairs at the uh, at the JCC where we were holding services. We had split services, and I wanted to give my sermon live yeah. in both places. And running up the stairs one time, uh, I was a little out of breath, <laughs> and uh, right in front of me was uh, my dear friend Lou Tischoltz, the cardiologist. And the cardiologist so, of the Rebbe, of uh, Menachem and, Mendel Schneerson. Right. Uh, and uh, was my cardiologist. Yeah. So, uh, and I'm looking at Lou and I said, you know, maybe life is like a cardiogram. There's ups and downs. Yeah. And when you think about it, we don't want a straight line. Because hmm. a straight line in a cardiogram is you're dead. Yeah. So life is, and there's never been a year in my 72 years of life that's had more ups and downs uh, actually, than this year, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, with COVID nineteen and watching uh, on a global scale as as well as human personal. Yeah. I mean, what we had to go through to get here uh, to be with you and Rebecca and Hindi <laughs> uh, for Silla's birth. Yeah. Uh, and so, how do you keep uh, going up and down? And what I do matters. And what happens to me? is also a result, uh, I, I truly believe, of uh, my own free will, God's will, and the free will of everyone I interact with. I, I think this up and down idea is really interesting of like, because Yaakov is having this dream of the up and down when he's about to go on sort of the hero's journey. You know, if Joseph Campbell was here, he would say like, this is the beginning of Jacob's hero's journey. 
And it's like saying there's going to be ups and downs. Um, and I also think it's really powerful because you've had a lot of ups and a lot of downs. Um, like, um, you know, you lost your father when you were 17. Um, you, uh, the, there have certainly been difficulties in your life. And yet you just welcomed your fourth grandchild into the world. And we started off talking about your grandfather and this memory of your grandfather sitting um, at the Passover Seder and all the grandchildren around him. And I know, and I know that it's been your dream my entire life to one for you to one day be surrounded by your grandchildren at the Passover Seder. Absolutely. And so it's like there have been a lot of ups and downs to get here. It has not been a straight path. You know, I I have to assume that 10 years ago, you weren't necessarily sure if I was ever going to give you grandchildren. <laughs> um, uh, I'm sure the thought crossed your mind. Uh, you yeah, thinking, 10 years ago, I didn't uh, know if you were ever going to, uh, you know, uh, leave that shtetl. Uh, yeah, well, that's a story yeah, for another time. Uh, you know, it said, listen, it wasn't so good. And, you know, uh, and uh Yes, there are ups and downs in life, but what I do can matter. And also, the end of Jacob's dream at this first room in Vayetze uh, is the challenge for the 21st century. And the challenge for 2021, uh, God is in this place, and I didn't realize it. Hmm. We have to look for God uh, everywhere. Yeah. Because God is everywhere. God is everything. You know, the Kabbalists uh, talk about God. One of the names of God in, in Kabbalah is ain't so. Yeah. No thing. Nothing. Yeah. Because God is everything. Yeah. So how do we find uh, that? And how do we be God's voice and hands in the world? Because hmm. God doesn't have a voice and God doesn't have a hand. Yeah. Uh, my concept of God uh, more and more, I, uh, I've been reading a lot of Martin Buber, who's, we're about to celebrate the centennial of, uh, of his publishing of I and Thou, Ich and Du. Yeah. Uh, you and me. Ich and Du, it shouldn't be I and Thou, it should really be understood, translated, the right translation is you and me, Ich and yeah. Du. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I think God is the E of Einstein's equation. Another Jew of a hundred years ago, German Jew. Uh, yeah, who lived in Berlin. Who lived in Berlin, right. I mean, when we think about, uh, you know, uh, the German Jews of a hundred years ago, whose influence uh, sometimes we don't really appreciate. People like Buber and Einstein, and different. I, Buber, Einstein, and Freud. Yeah. You know, Freud was in Vienna, but... Still a German speaking. I, I will say, I think about all the time that in the 1920s in Berlin, you had Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, Rabbi Yosef Soloveitchik, Rav Huttner, uh, Heschel, Buber, Rosenzweig, um, uh, Leo Beck. Leo Beck, all hanging around Berlin. Um, and it's like, it, it's amazing because in the 1920s, maybe Jewish life had never been more alive in Berlin. Um, and we know what happened 10, 15 years later. Um, and it also, I think, shows the ups and downs. Like, peak, peaks don't remain high forever. Um, they have to go down. Um, and they'll go back up again. And that also feels to me like a lesson. This year's been bad. It's been a bad year for a lot of people. Um, but it will go up again because that's the nature right. of our and existence. And it's going to come up at a, and, and it's going to be different. That peak... There's no, uh, you know, on a cardi. If you look at the metaphor yeah. I was using before of a cardiogram, when the ups and downs, they're never. It, they don't go back to the same spot or go down to the same spot. Yeah. Uh, and that's part of how life works. Yeah. You know, in other words, so, uh, and still progressing. You know, yeah. there's a, uh, uh, a concept of, uh, you know, when you look at, uh, at the Hebrew alphabet. Yeah. You know, and uh, I mean, there's a great story about the Baal Shem Tov throwing up all the letters uh, of the Hebrew alphabet and saying, Rabboni Sholem, you write the prayer to save us. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, and uh, how do you have how do you have faith and yet take action to realize 
God's in this place, but I got to do my share too. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Rabbi Neil, thank you so much for joining us. I, I think we only began to scratch the surface of the story, so maybe you'll be a guest in a future season. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, and I do want to say it has. this has been a pleasure, and it's a pleasure being your son. Um, and I feel incredibly grateful all the time to have such um, amazing role models as parents, um, especially as I embark on my own parenting journey, trying to figure out how to keep these children alive and, you know, menschlich. Uh, I, I have amazing examples to look to. Um, and thank you to you and my mother for making it here and for being here with us in this special time. Um, is there anything you'd like to add before we go? One thought. Yeah. You and Rebecca and your peers, by the way, in Across the denominational uh, spectrum of Judaism, uh, your generation gives me great hope. Hmm. I think that you and Rebecca and your peers are going to bring Judaism to new and greater heights. And ex- not just heights, but also expanding the, the breadth hmm. uh, and inclusiveness of Jews. Uh, that's, that's my belief. Uh, it's my prayer hmm. as well. Amen. Uh, Thank you, Dad, for joining us. Thank you. Well, that's it for another episode of Torah Curious. Huge thanks to Avi Maureen, my dad, Rabbi Neil Borovitz, for flying all the way out to Berlin with special permission from the border guard just to record this episode. Huge thanks, as always, goes out to Rabbi Rebecca Blady, Valentin Lutzet for the cover art, Alex Segura and Takuya for the awesome tunes, John Earl for being the hooks we hang this podcast on, and our friend from the Bay who made this all possible. Special welcome to the world to Tzilla Malka Blady Borovitz. Stay tuned for the next episode of Torah Curious, set to drop in two weeks. In the meantime, keep learning stay curious.